amazed uh, year in and year out at the quality of our choir and how awesome they sound in leading us in worship. Uh, I'm just very thankful for the leadership that we have and our students' participation. It's, the, it's just a great way to, to begin a service, and it helps a preacher preach. I know that. Uh, well, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Uh, you know, uh, the bad news, you know, what we've got... Uh, uh, just a few more minutes left. I guess the good news is I know that I can cut my sermon off at any time, but I guess the other bad news is I don't have a working clock. I don't have, I don't have a time uh, to tell me, okay, time to stop, time to quit. Um, I was at a graduation party last night, and um, one of the guys there, gentleman I'm friends with, he said, just remember, Kevin, uh, brevity is next to godliness. And I said, okay, well, I wonder what he thinks about Scott. So... Uh, <laughs> But uh, we started talking about, you know, yeah, we do have some signals. Molly and I have some signals, you know, if, if it's time to land the plane, if it's time to, you know, get the sermon over with, you know, she might start playing, you know, with her necklace going from one side to the other, like, cut, cut, it's time, it's time to be done. And then, so all the ladies were at the, uh, that were at the, the graduation party last night, I'm sure, went home and got them a necklace so they could start, uh, time, time, time to be done, time to cut, but... Uh, um, but if you would, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. We may not get through but uh, the first few verses, uh, but uh, as you're turning there, there's a story of uh, four passengers on a plane, and the passengers were a, uh, a preacher, and you had the valedictorian of his senior class, or the smartest teenager in the world, you had a young kid, and then you had a brain surgeon. Well, the pilot had a heart attack, and he was dying, and they only had a few minutes uh, before the plane crashed, and they only had three parachutes. And so uh, the brain surgeon was first to rush to the place where they keep the parachutes and put it on his back and say, you know what, I, I save people's lives every day, so I've got to have one of these parachutes. So he took it, and he strapped it on, and he jumped out of the plane. And then the smartest teenager in the world said, you know what, I am the smartest teenager in the world, and I, I feel like, you know, one day I'm going to have the cure for cancer, or I'm going to have the cure for whatever disease, and so I need a parachute. So he grabbed the little boy's parachute, and he put it on his back, and the little boy said, wait a second, don't go, wait, wait. And uh, he said, too late, so long, losers, and he jumped out the airplane. And then the pastor said, after some moments of prayer, he said, son, why don't you take this last parachute? I've lived a good long life, and I want you to, to live your life in full. And the little boy said, Pastor, don't worry. The smartest teenager in the world just jumped out of the airplane with my backpack. <laughs> so they were going to make it after all. Guess what, graduates? You made it. You made it. You made it to this point in time in your life. And I'm sure there'll be many other uh, mountains for you to climb, but no, with Jesus, you can make it. With Him, we can stand. Would y'all stand now in the reading of God's Word as we uh, read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. Paul's charge to Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom... Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and my time of departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray that nothing that I say this morning will cloud it. I pray that you would speak to the hearts and lives of the people in this room. And God, that you would use it to encourage us this morning. And that you would use it, Father, to convict us this morning. And God, I pray for maybe the one that's here this morning who's never been introduced to a loving relationship with yourself. I pray, God, that the gospel is made clear and plain and that they give their heart and their life to you this morning. But God, I pray that as we look at the, uh, the, the verses of the scripture, that you would help us to understand a life well lived is a life in the end where we can say, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race and I've kept the faith. God, help us to explore what that means this morning. And may your name be high and lifted up, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Timothy did not choose his ministry, but he was appointed his ministry by God. You see, the Lord set him apart for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And just as God sovereignly called Timothy to salvation, He also sovereignly appointed him to preach the gospel. So we know that 2 Timothy is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who was a young preacher. But I believe it has great relevance and application for us today, as we are all called to be ministers of the gospel. We have been entrusted with the greatest story ever told. Oh yeah, you may choose any path that your heart desires, but if you want the blessings of God in your life, and, and you want the Lord to be able to say at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant, you will choose the plight of life that God has given you. You will immerse yourself in what God has called you to do. About three weeks ago, Molly and I bit the bullet and we bought a new car. We haven't had a new car in a long time. We've never had a new, new car, a brand new car, but uh, uh, we finally bit the bullet and, and bought a new car. And, you know, some people identify uh, with the, the brand of car that they drive. Some people are Ford people. You know, some people won't drive anything other than a Ford. And some people are Chevrolet people, and uh, they won't drive anything but a Chevrolet. Well, that's not me, you know, because I studied uh, for a year. I really researched what would be the best kind of car for our family, so we wound up buying a Toyota. And... Uh, you know how long it takes to buy a car these days. I mean, it's like, it takes forever. You've got to sign your life away. And so we were at the dealership on that Friday and, and, and purchasing the car. And, and it was getting time for the kids to be getting picked up from school. So Molly takes our, our old car, the one that we were trading in, to go get Jay and Caroline. And so she brings them back to the dealership. I'm still signing papers. And so they are immersed in the whole, uh, you know, Toyota deal. I mean, you know, and, uh, and I'm sure they were uh, liking, loving being at the car dealership while Daddy bought a new car. But we finally sign the last paper, and we drive off in our new car. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, guys, do you like the new car? 
And, uh, you know, of course, they're not going to say, no, Dad, we don't like it. It's ugly. It's stupid. You know, they weren't saying that. Of course, Dad, we, we like it. We love it, you know. And so uh, I thought to myself, well, good. You know, that's great. Well, later on that night, we're in our house, and me and uh, Molly and Caroline are in our bedroom. And uh, we're sitting on the bed talking, and, and Jay is in the bonus room. Uh, an earshot of us, and we're an earshot of him. We can hear him watching television. And it got quiet all of a sudden, and, and Jay said, in a voice just as serious as he could say, he said, we should have bought a Ford. <laughs> I don't know what he was watching, but apparently he was watching a, a Ford commercial. But I'll tell you something, Jay had... Nothing to do with buying the car that we bought. Now, he might get a little allowance, but he doesn't get that much. The fact is that he has to be happy with his mode of transportation. He has to be satisfied in the fact that when we take him to swim practice, he's going to ride in a Toyota. He didn't choose it. We chose it for him. You know, he has to be satisfied with the fact when we take him to Sweet Frog or any place that he wants to go or the Guitar Center, all these places that he wants to go, uh, the destination is somewhere he really wants to be. He's got to be satisfied in the vehicle in which we have chosen for him to drive. You see, our satisfaction in life and our joy in life comes from immersing ourselves in the plan or the vehicle, so to speak, in this life's journey that God has chosen for us. God has placed a call on our life. God has placed a call in your life that says, no matter what you do, whether it be in the medical field, whether it be in education, whether it be in medicine, whether it be in ministry, whether it be in uh, whatever kind of field, you are first and foremost a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a platform given to you by God to do what he has called you to do. Listen to what John MacArthur says. It says, regardless of how things appear to the world, to the rest of the church, or even to ourselves, God's word assures us that the best of life belongs to those who know Christ as Savior and Lord and who give themselves up. For his service and glory. You see, I believe we can go through life and we can choose a, a, a path that, that affords our family a, a, a home, a car, food, clothing, and we can go through life and have our children, and we can go through life and just live life and ignore the call that God has on us to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this passage of Scripture that we read this morning is a message from a mentor to a pastor. But like I said, we each have our own ministry to fulfill. We each are called to live a life well lived. So what does that look like? Well, first of all, I believe that a life well lived from this passage of Scripture this morning is a life that has accountability. A life that has accountability. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and complete with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into all myths. So a life well lived, a life that is completing its task and what God has called us to do is a life of accountability. You and I are called to be accountable. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that we are called to be accountable, number one, to the reality of God's presence. That's what it says in verse 1. It says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. You and I are to live in the reality that God sees and knows everything that there is to know about us. There's a story of this uh, uh, Catholic school where uh, the children were getting ready to go to lunch. And they go to the lunchroom and at one end of the table was this big pile of apples and the nun put a sign on the apples that said, take only one. Remember, God is watching. And then they move on down the line. And at the other end of the table is a huge pile of chocolate chip cookies. And one kid leaned over to another and said, hey, listen, take as many cookies as you want. God's watching the apples. But we know that's not the case. We know God sees the apples and we know he sees the cookies. We know God is everywhere all the time. He sees everything and knows everything that there is to know about us. Listen to what Psalm 139, 7 through 16 says. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright, and as the day for darkness is light to you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see, I believe this morning that we know that God is all-seeing. We've been taught that our whole life. But I guess the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we accountable to it? Do we really live in the reality that God sees everything that we do? Do we really believe and live by the fact that God knows every thought that we have? Do we know and understand in our times of hurt and distress and trial and need that God is there for us to call upon his name and we live in the reality of his presence and we know that he is there to help us and pick us up and send us on our way? Do we really live and take advantage of that reality? You see, I believe that's a blessing to know that God sees all if we are running towards him. I really believe that it's a blessing to know that God is there in our time of hurt, trouble, trial. He is there. We need to live in that reality. But I also know that it can be a little bit fearful if we're running away from God. If we are running away from God and, and we are not running to the things of God, we're pursuing our own passions, we're pursuing our own desires, and we're living life the way we want to live it regardless of what anybody else thinks. We are living life under the assumption that God does not see me. 
But you know what he does? We need to live in the reality of God's presence. And need to know that he sees us and that he knows us. He knows every day that we will live even before we live it. What a great comfort that we have. So not only do we need to live in that reality of God's presence, we also need to live in the reality that we are accountable to God as our judge. That's what it says in verse 1 too. It says that I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. No one gets by without being judged by God. No one. Now, unbelievers are going to be judged by not receiving the gift of salvation. And there's going to come a time when God will have to look at them and say, Depart from me because I never knew you. You never trusted Jesus as your Savior, so therefore you can't spend eternity with me in heaven. You never repented of your sin. You never really believed the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, so I'm sorry. But even believers are going to be judged. Paul's talking to Timothy here that, hey, you're going to be judged. You need to preach that judgment. But we're going, to pre- be pre- we're going to be judged on the works that we do for his glory and for his kingdom. But we need to live in that reality that we are going to be judged. And God is our judge. I remember growing up in Hudson, the very small town. You know that, uh, as I've said in many sermons before. And uh, I walked home from school. I walked home with a friend of mine whose name was Randy. And we would stop at this store, and we called it the Hudson Superette uh, after school. You know, in there, of course, they had candy and drinks and, you know, all this stuff. Well, I didn't have any money, and he didn't have any money. And so, but we stopped in there anyway. Anyway, so uh, I guess we were window shopping. I don't know. Uh, what kind of candy bar can I get? Well, I can't get any because I don't have any money. Uh, but we were, uh, one day we had gone in and they were, we came out and then uh, I noticed that Randy had some candy in his hand. It's one of those little caramel things with the white sugar in the middle. I was like, man, those are awesome. I love that. You know, where did you get that? You didn't have any money. I didn't see you pay for that. He goes, I did and I just took it. I was like, I want some candy. And so I thought to myself the next day, I'm going to get me some candy. And so we stopped by the Hudson Superette. And I go to the candy aisle, only about 10 feet away from the cash register, where there's someone behind the cash register watching those people like me who come into the stores who are up to no good. But I waited for a moment until he was really busy, and then I slipped out. I did a naughty thing. I took a grape blow pop, and I put it in my pocket. And I started to walk out the store, and the clerk said, hey, you, stop! And at that moment... I should have gone to the bathroom. I was really, really scared because I had been caught. Randy took off out of the store and he left me in the store to face the judgment. And he said, son, what do you have in your pocket? And I thought, well, I'm going to outsmart him. I reached into the pocket that had nothing. And I reached in there and pulled out and said, nothing? He said, no, son, the other pocket. And so I reached in the other pocket and I pulled out the blow pop. And I was like, hey, where did that come from? He says, son, I know where it came from. You took it. I was caught. He said, you know what I could do right now? I could call the police. And I thought, great, a fourth grader going to jail for stealing a blow pop at the Hudson Superette. But he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to go home and tell your mother what you've done. 
you need to go home and tell your mom what you've done. And he said, I know her. I was like, of course you know her. This is Hudson. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And so I go home, and I'm thinking all the way home, what can I say to my mom? And so I walk into the house, and I dial 396-3313, and my mom answers the phone like she always did, Mackey Furniture Company, and I said, Mom, I almost got hit by a train. No, I didn't say that to soften the blow. I just started crying. I was like, Mom, I'm so sorry. Please don't tell Daddy. Mom, I'm so sorry. Please don't tell Daddy. Please don't tell Daddy. She goes, please don't tell Daddy what? And I kept on saying, please don't tell Daddy. Because I knew what would happen if Mom told Daddy. I know I can get an amen from some guys out here who know that they had a Daddy like that. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And it happened to him a lot, I know. (laughs) But But you know, to this day, my dad never said anything to me. I don't guess my mom told him. So, Dad, if you're listening later online to this sermon, I'm sorry. Forgive me. It was a long time ago. But ultimately, the one that I've fretted the most never became my judge. But you know what? The store clerk became my judge that day. My mom became my judge. But ultimately, knowing that God knew and saw what I'd done was my judge. So what does that mean for us today? That God is our judge and he knows all and he sees all and he knows our thoughts. He knows exactly what we do and he knows what we're going to do. I have a simple answer. Live for an audience of one. Live your life for an audience of one. You see, if I was living my life in, for an audience of one when I, when I was a fourth grader, I wouldn't have taken that blow pop. But you know what? In order for us to be a good student, live for an audience of one. Moms, if you want to be a good mom, live for an audience of one. Dads, if you want to be a good dad, live for an audience of one. If you want to be a good co-worker, live for an audience of one. Because when we live for an audience of one and we strive to please him and him alone, we're living in the reality of the accountability of that we are going to be judged. And one day we'll be able to stand before him and say, God, I knew and I recognized that you were going to be my judge for all eternity. So I tried my best to fight the good fight, to run the race and to keep the faith. But I think a life well lived is living in the reality of that accountability. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, he says, For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, not only are we accountable to live in God's presence and live with the accountability that He is our judge, but we are accountable to preach the Word. That's how he starts off verse 2. He says, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. You know, as we look at these graduates today, I'm sure moms and dads can remember the day that they were born. I'm sure many of you with, with children can remember the day that your children were born. I remember the day that Jay and Caroline were born. I remember Caroline was born on a Wednesday and Jay was born on a Sunday. I remember being at the hospital on a Wednesday and it and, and seemed like half of our, 
our youth group was parked outside uh, in, in, the, in the waiting area there. They brought sleeping bags. Hey, let's throw a party. Kevin and Molly are having a baby. But they were there. And I remember uh, as, as I was beside Molly's bed, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, uh, you know, I can't wait to go out and tell these, these, these people have come to, to hear about Caroline's birth, about her birth. I remember sitting there, you know, doing the thing that a good husband does, you know, saying, help, uh, honey, push, help me, I'm hurting. No, I said, I said, push, push. I was doing all those things to, to be a good husband, you know. And for some reason, the phone's right here, and it starts ringing, and I'm like, I don't know why, but I picked it up and answered it, and I said, hello, sorry can't talk, having a baby, bye. And I hung up the phone, and it was our children's director, so she understood. But I couldn't wait to show the people our new daughter. I could not wait to herald and to proclaim to these people that I was a daddy. Now with Jay, it was just a little bit different. Because Jay all along was supposed to be a Sally. He was supposed to be either a Sally or a Madeline. Or, and, and because the doctor had told us, because he looked at the pictures and he showed me the pictures. And he said, you know, it's, it's a girl. And I'm like, how can you tell that by looking at that? And I'm, but he did. He, he said, I'm, it's a girl. But we were so excited about that we had another girl, you know. And um, the second birth was not as many people there at the hospital as the first time. You know, oh, Kevin and Molly, they already had one baby. Here's, here comes another. But my dad was there. My dad did not have a grandson. And so I knew that. And uh, as we identify Jay as a boy, you know, you're able to identify that when they come out. <laughs> I think to myself, I can't wait to tell my dad that he has a grandson. Can't wait. And boy, I did. I remember the emotion of it going outside and, and looking at my dad and saying, Dad, you got a grandson. We had a moment. It was awesome. You know what? I heralded that. I proclaimed that to him with great emotion and great excitement and great enthusiasm. So what does that mean? It means... Here in verse 2, Paul uses an imperative form of proclaiming. It means that we are communicating that the gospel is not an option for us. That God has called Timothy to preach the gospel. We are commanded then, like Timothy, to preach the word. The word actually means to herald or to proclaim. You see, many of us have no problem proclaiming or heralding the fact that my team is better than yours. We have no problem proclaiming or heralding the fact that, hey, my son hit a home run in the game today. We have no problem sitting back and proclaiming and heralding the fact that, hey, we got a promotion. Hey, I got a new job. Hey, I got a raise. My son or my daughter made straight A's. We proclaim all these things with great excitement and great enthusiasm. And Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Do we preach the word with the same amount of enthusiasm as we do heralding some of the things that's closest to our heart. 
Guys, we have the greatest story ever told in our hearts and in our lives of how we came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, how we once were lost but now we're found, how once we had a home in hell but now we have a home in heaven because of what Jesus Christ done for us on the cross of Calvary, how he forgave us of our sins. He came up and he took residence in our life. That is a great story of how God Almighty and God Eternal left the portals of heaven to come and to die for us that we might receive him into our heart and our life and have the assurance of heaven as our home and salvation. There's no greater story. There's nothing greater than that reality. And Paul says, preach the word. Preach the word. You see, I believe that we're called to preach the word no matter what vehicle or platform that God has given us to use. Is that how you see your job? Is that how you see your education, students? That God has given you this platform and this, this point in time in life. Yeah, I'm a student, number two. But number one, I'm a minister of the gospel. I might be a doctor, number two. But I'm a minister of the gospel of Christ. I might be a teacher, number two. But number one, I'm a minister of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's charge to Timothy as a preacher, to preach the message of Christ is not just for preachers because I'm telling you, church, you're going to rub shoulders and you're going to have circle of influences that me or Scott or Kevin or, or Pastor Willis, Dr. Willis, will never have. And Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, preach the word. Preach the word. So what are we to preach? What is our message Number one, we are to proclaim the gospel and defend it at all times. We are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are to defend it at all times. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. We're to be ready. We're not to say, wait, 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 can I call my youth pastor and let him tell you about it? Oh, wait, can I call Scott or can I call Kevin Seeger and, and let them tell you about it? No, he says, you, you be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. You see, graduates, we need to remember that many will not agree with what we've been taught our whole life. We all need to, to be a walking proclamation of the gospel that's heralding the saving news of Jesus Christ. And this word, defend, it, 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 it connotates something that, that we need to know more about, and that's some apologetics. And guys, I know in youth group we've studied some of these things, and it's okay to, to bring these things into a conversation about God and about Jesus. Because you know what? If, if science proves the validity of God's word, you know... Other than my faith, I'm, I'm going to think, hey, there's some scientific evidence that proves the validity of God's word. I can hang my hat on that too. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with saying that and presenting that in a gospel presentation. In our youth group, in some of our sessions, we've learned about these things. We've learned about how science actually confirms the Bible as the word of God. Take, for example, you know, uh, that the earth is suspended in space. Ancient cultures uh, didn't know this. The Egyptians believed that the earth was supported by pillars. The Greeks believed that the earth was carried on the back of Atlas. 
But no scientist discovered that the earth was suspended in space. Because Job 26, 7 says, He stretches out his hand over the north and the empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. So the Bible tells us that God suspended earth. No scientist discovered that. So science is proving the validity of God's word. Well, then in 1492, what did Columbus do? Oh, y'all need hooked on phonics. In 1492, what did Columbus do? He sailed the ocean blue. He sailed the ocean blue, and they said, hey, don't fall off the end of the earth, because the earth's flat. So did Christopher Columbus discover that the world was round? No, he didn't. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says this, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. That's amazing to me. That science is saying, hey, yeah, what God's word says is true. It has already proven that the earth is suspended, that the earth is round. And it also proves that the stars cannot be counted. There was an astronomer who lived 150 years before Christ who said that there was 1,022 stars. He was a little off. And then in 1056, Ptolemy came along and said, you know what? No, that dude was wrong. There's 1,056 stars. Well, guess what? Ptolemy was wrong. And then 1,300 years later, a guy by the name of Galileo who invented the telescope, he discovered that there were too many stars to be counted. Did he really discover that? No. Jeremiah 33:22 says, The host of heaven cannot be numbered. So it's okay to, to have some scientific evidence to back it up. And it's not just scientific evidence that proves the validity of God's Word. There's historical evidence. There's prophecy. There's the unity of God's, God's Word and how it stood the test of time and how people have given their life and died for the reality of God's Word. So we are, we are to be ready to give that kind of defense. We can't just say, well, how, why do you believe what you believe? Oh, it's just what I've been taught my whole life. Study. Prepare yourself to do the work of an evangelist. Prepare yourself to fulfill your ministry. But not only are we to, to give a defense for the hope that is in us, this preaching also includes reproving and rebuking. And that simply means that we are basically, basically calling sinners to repentance. And we really don't like that message when we, we look at someone and we say, listen, with, with, without Christ, you're going to die and go to a place where you don't want to go. We don't like sharing that message with them. We don't like calling people to repentance. But that's what the words reprove and rebuke mean, that we are to help people understand their, 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 their state of, of, of danger if they don't receive Christ as Savior. We live in a, in a tolerant world today that says, you know what, I won't offend you with my beliefs if you don't offend me with yours. Really? Is that the way we want to live life? So we're afraid that we might offend our neighbor, so we're not going to go over and share Christ with him. Or we're afraid that we're going to offend our coworker and we're not going to share Christ with him in the name of tolerance. Well, how about in the name of God? And in the name of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we put tolerance to the side and we say, you know what? Without Christ, you're going to die and spend eternity in hell. 
It's real. I have a friend of mine who is a, an evangelist who lives in Boone, North Carolina. and his, I was uh, their youth pastor for eight years while I was there, and their sons came through the youth ministry. He gave me a call the other day just to let me know of a couple things. The first thing, he said, you know what, Kevin, uh, Jonathan, our oldest son, just had a baby. You know, he and his wife just had a baby. They were celebrating that, and that was all great and good. And, and then uh, we, I was thanking, thanking the Lord for that, and I was excited for them. But then he said, you know, I've got something else to tell you. He's uh, an evangelist, and he spends a lot of time in prisons. And he said, I ran into somebody uh, the other day that you might know. And I said, who, Scott Davis? No, I didn't. I, I didn't. I said, Kevin Seeger? No, I didn't say that either. But he proceeded to tell me a story of how he had sat down with this young man, 17 years old, who had just began, begun a 17-year sentence for a crime that he committed. And he began to share with him and reprove him and rebuke him and tell him that without Christ, there's no hope. And he shared with him, that opened the door for him to share the message of the gospel and the greatest story ever told. And this young man wound up receiving Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he continues to talk with him. And he said, has anybody ever shared that story with you before? At 17 years old, he said, no, sir. Nobody's ever told me about that. And Johnny asked him one more question. He said, son, where did you grow up? He said, Concord, North Carolina. And I thought to myself how there are people all around us that need to know, that need to know the message of the gospel. And they're living in your neighborhood. They're living in my neighborhood. You go to school with them and you work with them every day. Reprove, rebuke in order to share the gospel. So this morning as we come to a close of our sermon, I'm wondering based on what we've looked at, being accountable to these things, being accountable to living in the reality of God's presence and being accountable to the fact that God is our judge and being accountable to the fact that we are all called to preach the word. Can we say, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm running the race. I'm keeping the faith. Because a life well lived is defined not by how much money you make, not what size house you have, not anything other than what you do for the Lord Jesus. My hope and my prayer is this morning, if, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you, you don't have a relationship with Him, that you come down front, I know Pastor Scott's going to be here, and he would love to talk to you about that. And you can walk out of here today, a new man, a new woman, based on what Christ has done for you on the cross. But you're a Christian here maybe today and you're like, you know what, I've not really been sold out. I've not really lived in that reality that God sees everything that I do. I've not really lived in a reality He knows every thought that I have. I've not really lived in reality that I'm going to be judged one day by God. I've not really lived in reality that I'm accountable to the fact that I should preach the gospel. And you want to be recommitted to that? Maybe God's calling you to this altar and, and saying, you know what, recommit yourself to that. 
Make your job second. Me first. We're going to pray. And then we're going to stand and sing together. I surrender all. Pastor Scott will be here to the front. I just ask you that you do what the Lord is leading you to do. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. We know that it doesn't return void. And I pray, God, that you speak to the hearts and lives of those here who need to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, today is the day of salvation. And we're not promised tomorrow. I pray, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin and help them realize that without Christ they could spend eternity in hell. God, speak to their hearts and give them courage and boldness to step forward and make that choice today. But also, Father, for the Christian, I pray that if they have wandered from you and they, they have, they're running from you and they're not living life accountable to these things, Lord, that they would come and recommit their way to you. That they too, one day, would be able to stand before you with the righteousness of Christ imputed in their lives. Say, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race and I've kept the faith. God, have your will and your way in this service, in this invitation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?